Before we get rolling into today's podcast, I want to tell you about our awesome sponsors that uh, keep this thing free for you guys. So first we have DuckSeason.com. That's D-U-K-S-Z-N.com. Go on there. Check it out. Uh, You can get signed up for uh, Traded Hunts where you put in your location, the kind of birds you're after, you know, the type of things that you do. And uh, you can search around on there, see other people, their areas, what they go after, and you can talk with each other and get linked up and trade hunts with each other. So rather than hiring an outfitter or a guide, if you're on a budget or kind of want to do a little bit of a DIY thing, you can get linked up with some people, go hunt their area, they come out and hunt in your area. It's a really cool thing. Also on there, there's some forums, you know, duck hunting, waterfowl hunting in general, different tips and advice, things like that. And they also have a lot of merchandise, really cool stuff. And in their merchandise, they have the Salty Fowl line of clothing, where 100% of the profits from that go to uh, Eider Research out there on the coast. So really cool cause. Go check it out. Go buy some stuff. Get on some trade hunts. You definitely won't regret it. Next, we have Steady Wing Outfitters. That's Mikey Soberano. He's up there in northeast Kansas, and he uh, specializes in waterfowl, turkey, and deer. You can check him out on Instagram at Steady Wing Outfitters. Uh, and if you want to book a hunt, you can give him a call. His number is 785-410-2304. Next, we have 701 Pursuit. They're over there in North Dakota. They're making a bunch of awesome hunting and fishing content. It's on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all of the places. Go check them out for some high-quality stuff. They also have a website with some merchandise and other things on it. Uh, the website is 701pursuit.com. That's the numbers, 701pursuit.com. So check them out. All the places that you have social media, they're on there somewhere. Next, we have Bulldog Baits. It's over there in western Oklahoma. Uh, they're making crankbaits, jigs, soft plastic, spoons, jig heads, sinkers, anything you need for fishing. They've got it. So you can check them out on uh, Instagram. It's bulldog underscore baits. And if you want to go on their website to order some stuff, it's bulldog-baits.square.site. So if you're needing anything, definitely, definitely go check them out. Also, on the same note, we have Stump Thumper Baits. Their website is stumpthumperbaits.com. They also have soft plastics, jigs, all that type of stuff. Want to check them out too on Instagram. Their handle is at stumpthumperbaits. They're also Facebook, anywhere else. Now we have Waylon Johnson and his guide service. He's over in the San Antonio area. Uh, he's hunting ducks, geese, anything waterfowl you guys want to get on over there down in Texas. You can give him a call at 361-494-7868. You can also find him on Facebook. Uh, his name is just Waylon Johnson. See what he's been up to. Check out the cool birds down there. All that good stuff. And lastly, we have my dog training business up here in Northeast Montana. Uh, I specialize in retrievers, but I train all sorts, basic obedience, force fetch, waterfowl upland, anything you're looking to get done with your dog, I can help you out with. Um, You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, all the normal places. It's H-I-L-I-N-E, retrievers. And then if you're looking for some advice or looking to uh, get set up with some training, give me a call. My number is 406 seven eight three seven zero eight three thanks a lot thanks to our sponsors go check them all out and enjoy the show
shotguns are singing A pointing dog down in the old logging road And Danny got three And looked back a grinning I fumbled around and I tried to reload The country was cold. Welcome to the Woods and Water Podcast. This is Garrett. Today I have Matt Lumley on. Um, I guess, Matt, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Well, hello, everyone. I'm Matt Lumley. Uh, my family of four reside just north of Gardner, Montana. Uh, currently, I'm the president of the Montana Trappers Association, also the vice president of the National Trappers Association. Okay. So, I guess, being those high up in the titles, you most likely have been doing this stuff your whole life. Um, how did you get started in the outdoors? Well, it started pretty early. My dad was a, a trapper back in the 70s, and I think uh, my first experience on, on the trap line was probably at six months old. I was riding in the pack basket with him, and that was in Iowa. Okay. What were you guys trapping back there? Mainly muskrats is what he, we targeted, but then um, a few raccoons and, of course, the mink, but uh, mainly muskrats. Okay. So, I guess, trapping all you do, or you do a lot of hunting fish and that type of thing i do all of it um i would say i fish poorly but uh <laughs> i'm an avid hunter so. perfect uh so uh mostly just big game stuff or what do you go after mainly big game yeah but uh predators is my specialty that's that's what i do yeah so i guess we're at a trapper educator uh course whatever to get become certified trapper educators and so while we were there you were saying that you uh use bait dogs also when you're doing your predators yeah so it was something i was a, a federal trapper in wyoming um and got to learn from some of the best and one of the best avenues to, to control predators coyotes specifically is a decoy dog and what a trap line decoy dog does is he comes with me on my trap line my snare line and you know i've killed more old wolves and coyotes with a with a good dog beside me than that's probably the number one tool so how, how are you using them then? Well, so we'll come up on a uh, where a, a producer is lambing in the springtime, and I'll let that dog out of the truck on a stock dam or salient feature, macro location, we call it in the trapping world, and I'll let him out. And first thing your dog does is he shows you where all the marking stations are, and he lifts his leg. And what you want to pay real close attention to is where that front foot's planted because they're showing you where every predator is marking so that's a, your first set and those coyotes that are depredating on livestock or just for even recreational trapping that it's a very valuable tool and their other use is this i'll uh, i'll go out and specifically you know this time of year if you've got coyotes killing on lambs or coyotes killing calves you can howl and those coyotes if you they'll answer you and that dog will go out and engage those coyotes and they'll basically run right in it's called dogging coyotes you can google it and, and it's just a very effective tool to it it will really help you uh, remove some very nasty coyotes that are causing some real damage that's cool so obviously you're a federal trapper and you've got these titles so you didn't just go from muskrats all the way up and you've done some a lot bigger than coyotes so how did you work your way up from muskrats up to there did you just kind of dive in or slowly no i think it's been a you know uh very passionate thing I've, I've always enjoyed it so uh trapped a lot of raccoons in the midwest and then went professional around 1996 trapped in the south arkansas mississippi um and then but always wanted to be in the mountains so i came to montana 
and worked on a ranch there just north of Yellowstone National Park. Um, following 9-11, I put in and I, I became a federal trapper, was working out east on uh, nutrient invasive species on the Chesapeake Bay. Did some high-level uh, endangered species work, that kind of thing, and then was there during Hurricane Isabel. Um, was highly decorated as a result of that. Uh, you know, you'd have done the same thing if you were there, that's what I'll tell you. But ended up transferring to Wyoming, and my primary duty was, uh, I was a backcountry trapper, protecting about 60,000 sheep in the Wyoming range and down there on the Red Desert. And it was a great way to make a living as a single man. <laughs> Not so much as a married man? No, you know, you're gone all the time. Um, I uh, When my wife and I got together, I, I missed holidays because we'd have coyotes that were killing livestock somewhere and i'd be out shooting them on christmas eve type of a thing so yeah so what i guess as a federal trapper what was like your schedule for the week like were you just out on your own did you have assignments or of course of course you had assignments you know we uh we had different livestock producers and, and a lot of it depends on what the what level of depredation you got going different times of year better than others when when those sheep guys are lambing that's critical. Those coyotes will suck right in and they can do a lot of damage. Um, obviously when the guys are calving, um, that's another critical period. So, and then in the winter time, those coyotes are hungry and it's cold and down there, those sheep hit that, you know, out there on the red desert and things and, and they'll suck right into them and they can do a lot of damage really quick. I bet. So you worked your way up, you're a federal trapper. Now, you are known as a wolf trapper too. How did you get into that area, and how did you learn that? Well, so I was taught by some of the best, some of the federal guys that nobody's ever heard about, because um, they're all very humble. And you know, in that time, the the wolves had been reintroduced into Yellowstone as a non-essential experimental population, and we were told a lot of things like, you know, they won't surplus kill, they don't double den, um, they're going to stay inside of Yellowstone. Well, none of that was factual i mean obviously uh, wolves are 10 times recovery goals today so i met my wife and i was making about well, a little over twenty thousand dollars a year and and that ended the federal trapping thing i haven't been a federal trapper in a lot of years now so okay so you uh just wolf trap recreationally now then i do okay so I'm trying to think onto this let's backtrack a little bit and kind of a lot of the listeners I know are not trappers, and there's a lot of people in the South that are turkey hunters that uh, the big thing is getting rid of raccoons and skunks, the mm -hmm. nest raiders and stuff. So I guess since you've got an experience in this, if somebody wanted to get started, let's just say down the basics, muskrats, raccoons, what would a guy need to get started and I guess how would you start? Quick rundown basics. You know, the basics, I, I would find your local trapper camp and I would go there. So at the turn of the century, 2000, 2001, I was involved in a, a study and it was done by Mississippi State University for Dr. George Hurst. And we went down there and it was all about wild turkeys because the turkeys is a pretty fascinating story. The top three predators are your nest raiders, your possum, skunks, coons, mm -hmm. followed by bobcats, coyotes, foxes, that kind of thing. Um, the other big factor in that is that a lot of times they'll nest in a flooding plain and the Mississippi River rises and it wipes all the nests out. But you know, in wildlife management, you can get a couple things right, and that's habitat and predator management, and the other two factors you can't control, and that's weather and disease. But if you get the two out of the four right, 
generally have bumper crops of ungulates and turkeys and, and other things. And so that's what that study was all about because those nestorators, like you, you alluded to, possums, skunks, and coons are devastating on the right ear. And uh, they're really hard on pheasants, ducks, and turkeys. Yeah, anything with eggs. So if a guy did want to get started, I guess you recommend they start getting some, well, you said find your uh, trapper association. But, I mean, what kind of gear would you recommend they start out with? Uh, snares, cage, foothold, uh, dog proof. I know I started for raccoons with dog proof and uh, live traps. And that was nice and easy. And, I mean, starting out when you see uh, like a jaw trap, it's a little bit more intimidating, a little bit for people that haven't grown up doing it. So I guess just kind of break it down a little bit because like I said, there's a lot of guys down the south that it's a big thing. They need to start doing it, and they don't quite know where to start. Absolutely. So if you're in Mississippi, the you know the Mississippi Trappers Association do clinics on how to do this. So oh, do the cool. Arkansas Trappers Association. So does the Alabama Trappers Association. All those southern states have very, very active trappers associations that are – they'll teach you how to do this. Perfect. Um, I would – there's a lot of tools in our toolbox in wildlife management. Trapping is one of them, very scientifically proven over the last century. Um, you know, dog proofs are highly effective, but you have to be careful with them. Um, and you have to know when and where to use them. Uh, that was one of the things we went over today. You yeah. know, I'm going to teach those kids how to, you can increase your catch success with a dog proof trap if you actually cut off a pool noodle, cut it into a pie square, stick it on the trigger because their, their claws will actually get caught in that pool noodle and then you take corn with like blueberry kool-aid or grape kool-aid and put a golf ball over the top of it to keep the mice and the the water out of it and and that'll increase your success cage traps are highly effective until you get a skunk and you're in a subdivision he lifts (laughs) his tail and sprays everybody you know so yeah so now i guess from there work your way up uh coyotes is kind of the next step especially up here and then we get up to where you are, where you do wolves, which is another thing that's intimidating to a lot of people. Like me personally, I think it'd be really cool to do it, but I don't quite have the cojones to just go up by myself and try to figure it out. And like we were talking about today, it's not something you should just try to figure out. You've got to have, you got to know the behavior so you're not getting bycatch and, you know, messing up. So for wolves, I guess, is there some sort of like we're talking about you're not gonna you're gonna use a drag is one thing um what what is the biggest difference between coyote and wolves when it comes to trapping them well the gear size is one and then you know with the potential for incidental take which we minimize at all costs um the seasons later so the the climate's that much harsher you know we this last year we started wolf trapping the third week of december well it's 20 below three foot of snow and to keep a, a foothold trap going in that is pretty doggone hard we gained snares in the last legislative session here um, in 2021. That's a, a very critical tool. But with power comes responsibility, and there are certain places that you, just because you can use something doesn't mean you should. Yeah. And there's ways to go about that. And that's what this, this, youth, or this mandatory education is all about, is we have a responsibility as a wildlife managers to do things ethically and with minimal impact. And... I don't want any bycatch at all. Um, so that's what we're teaching here is there's there's ways to mitigate bycatch. And it's pan tensions and it's blocking your snares in. It's understanding when you can set uh, and when you can't. 
and that's that's the difference okay so now you mentioned that there in the last legislative we gained snares i guess so everybody knows that trapping is the like the first line that the anti-hunting and you know trapping population goes after because it's the easiest thing so i guess what kind of things are we facing right now what do we have to watch out for and you know if we're going if things are going to be going to legislature what should we be watching for and what should we voice our opinions about well i i think the biggest thing facing trappers today is the endangered species act and the fact that it's being used as a sword instead of a shield um you you can just look at oregon ip13 they showed the, the other side showed their cards on this they went after all consumptive use literally a branding would be a felony in Oregon if IP13 passes. And that should terrify you because the entire consumptive way of life, the Montana way of life, the Western way of life is under attack. It's not just trapping. We're the low-hanging fruit. They think we're, we're small in number. But here's the deal. Trapping has never been more necessary, and this is the biggest fallacy. You know, they, they banned trapping in Massachusetts in the early... Well, I want to say 90s, somewhere in there. I don't know the exact year. It was question question one or two. Um, trapping is alive and well in Massachusetts today. It's a $5 billion industry because when you eliminate trapping recreationally, guess what? Trapping still occurs. You just pay for it at the yeah. taxpayer's expense. That, that's the biggest fallacy. If they ban trapping in, in Montana tomorrow, it still goes on. You just pay a professional at the taxpayer's expense to do it. Yeah, Colorado... Arizona, California, anywhere they banned it, go on and Google coyotes attacking kid, kids, coyotes attacking dogs. You can watch it for hours mm-hmm. because those species are no longer being managed. And we, the, the cruelest thing we can do to wildlife is not manage it. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing with the uh, hunting too because um, like over east where they do the uh, city bow hunting type of deal to manage those herds, I know of a, I, I can't say specific towns or whatever because I know I'll mess it up, but they banned that because, you know, somebody had a deer run through their yard with an arrow hanging out of them. And so they banned it thinking, you know, now we won't see deer running through our yard, getting injured or whatever. And then now they're just paying for uh, sharpshooters to come out there and that are professional ones that can, you know, either 22 to the head or they're specific archery guys that they, they know exactly that at 20 yards they can hit spot knock them down and that's it right there but it's still going to happen it's the same thing with trapping so yeah well and and with the sharpshooting thing i mean that's exactly right um we need to manage wildlife and you know i was involved in you know i was usda wildlife services and i was stationed out there on the eastern shore of maryland but i also was part of a sharpshooting team that went into the washington dc belt loop in 2004 because deer were running across the beltway and causing fatalities and 60 car pileups in the fog. And we needed to remove those species. The Humane Society comes in and says, oh, you can sterilize them. You can do all this stuff. None of that works. It, I mean, it's, it's so ridiculous. Um, and it's just proven. They're still riding that train, but it doesn't work. And we've got to get past all that. And it's time folks speak up about it. it it's... Um, Hunting, fishing, and trapping is conservation. And what we do has never been more necessary, and we're, we've never been more vital than we are today. So what 
what do you re- recommend that your average Joe Blow guy does then? Like just start going to legislative s- sessions that involve this and speaking up or closer to home or what? how do you start? I think you get involved in the Montana Trappers Association if you have uh, – if you have interest in trapping, I mean, if you have a chicken coop, you should be interested in trapping because you're going to have weasels, coons, skunks, foxes, coyotes, bears, different things. Not that I'm proposing. Please don't anybody take that out of context because nobody's proposing that we trap grizzly bears. Yeah, but, yeah, that makes sense. And so then from there, obviously, that's a, as a group, it's kind of like, boy, it's just like Pete is a group. The Trapper Association is a group on the other side of it. And that's where you can get together and get your ideas and make a plan. You know, a, a lot of voices together is a lot stronger than just one voice saying one thing. And then it's more of a cohesive plan, too. It's not a bunch of different random things. Well, absolutely. United we stand, divided we fall. And it, it's time for folks to understand that, you know, I wake up as a trapper every day and my existence offends the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. They speak of tolerance, but they don't have any. Um, I trap coyotes. Do you know how many deer fawns, elk, calves I've saved because of the coyotes that I take? Uncountable. It's uncountable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they say one coyote is four fawns over its lifetime, at least. Easily. I, and I would say that there's certain pairs um, specifically that are a lot more than that. that. You know, that would be hard to extrapolate and get the actual data on. But what I will tell you is... When you go in and you take 160 coyotes out of the Wyoming range, the Wyoming range deer herd does amazingly well, and the antelope crop the following year does well. When you go in and remove 16 coyotes out of uh, Area 10 Dubois off the bighorn sheep, the lambing success rate jumps exponentially. There's a direct correlation, and there always has been, and there's tons of data that backs that. And... So we always say follow the science. The science is there. The problem is a lot of times is it's it's all wrapped up with federal folks that can't speak because they're they're tied to not talk about it. Yeah. And then our other we're we're bashful about it. You know, I go to the legislature a lot now, and we we work on issues. And I had somebody ask me, they're like, you know, there's always all these other people up there, and you guys don't show up. And my comment is, well, that's because we all have real jobs. <laughs> true well and see that and it's i i almost would be afraid that i would say the wrong thing and things would get taken out of context or they would start asking questions that i don't have answers to and i don't want to say things that are wrong and then all of a sudden i'm the poster child and there's youtube videos going around about this idiot trapper that doesn't know anything and they've got you know got the time to use google and they can research everything i said and find out 50 percent of what i said isn't 100 percent true and then yeah, that type of thing makes me nervous. I that's why like on this subject, I'm always I tiptoe around it because I don't want to say the wrong thing. Well, and this is what I'll tell you: if you're involved long enough, you're going to make mistakes. Own them, be human about them. But the other side says things that just absolutely are not true. Yeah, but go- they, they yell it loud enough that you can't say anything. They yell it loud enough, but it's kind of like your three-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. Do you reward that behavior or do you, you know? you get involved and and here's the thing we've got to get over just because you disagree on one point that doesn't make the other side the antichrist actions define whether they're the antichrist or not it's okay to say you know what i don't know the answer to this let me do a little research but these issues have become so polarizing that when you say i trap holes 
half the people in the room and ate me when I walk in. But they don't listen to why I trap wolves. See, I think we need to return to a holistic wildlife man- management approach in Montana. Mm-hmm. And that means all species matter. We agreed to 15 breeding pairs or 150 wolves in Montana. Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks is admitting to 1,200. That's what they're admitting. That's what they're admitting to. And as a former Fed, I will tell you, I think the numbers are significantly higher because I never could tell you exactly how many wolves I was chasing. You have singles and doubles, and there, there's things going around. How do you count that? Nobody does. I mean, you you had a, a member of Yellowstone National Park go in to the Game and Fish Commission last year and testify there were only 13 wolves north of Yellowstone. No, 14 wolves. Let me be factual about that. Well, I can show you a video of 13 wolves in January. 20 miles north of Yellowstone National Park. We'd already killed five and 313 and another 20 and 314. So what's up with that? Do they not know? See, I think they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, or the data is skewed. So, you know, you're, you're hunting something or you're, you're talking about something that's very elusive by nature. And there are a ton of them out there. And you also, like you said, uh, using the endangered species thing as a sword instead of a shield, could that be part of it too, that if they admit that, say there's 2,500 and they know that, that could be a big difference between, I'm just saying that number, there could be a lot difference on getting things off the endangered species list if there's an actual number and they keep it below that. Well, it, and I don't know if that's part of it. I'm just... No, no, example. that's exactly part of it. So we agreed to 15 breeding pairs or 150 wolves in Idaho, in Montana, and in Wyoming. Like total for the three states? 450 for the total of three states. Idaho has 1,500 that we know of. That's what their numbers are. We're at 1,200 that we're admitting to, and Wyoming's four to 600. Um, I never went to college, but that's a little more than 450. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So So. I, I guess on that end of thing, let's say we get in a time machine right now and hop 10 years in the future... On the path that we're on, where do you see this at? Like, are we going to be overrun with wolves? Hopefully not. Or are people going to start waking up to this thing? Or do you think it's just going to go downhill worse and somebody's going to mess up, put a bad picture out somewhere, and things are going to go downhill? Well, so the bad picture, you know, social media, it's a different world. You put a picture out there, and it's out there for everybody to see. But, But let's be straight. How much worse can it get? So if you go out back to the numbers of the early 2000s, uh, Dome Mountain, you could go there. They gave 500 and some late-season bull tags. You could literally get a paraplegic, a 389 bull, 389-inch bull. Mm-hmm. There, there'd be bulls 500 strong standing in groups. There was tw- almost 20,000 head. In 1997, in the late-season gardener late hunt, they harvested 2,200 cows. You know how many cows they harvest today in Gardner, Montana, in the late hunt? A dozen. It doesn't exist. Really? It's gone. The answer is zero. So Article 9, Section 7 of the Montana Constitution clearly states that the right to harvest shall forever be preserved to the citizens of the state. Fact check me. We lost three to 4,000 tags in 313, 316, and 314 alone. It is the greatest loss of hunting opportunity in the state, if not the country. Why aren't we talking about that? How, how did we lose it? Well, because, so, it, and this is what I will say. It's not just all the wolves. Hunting played a factor. There's other factors involved. But they absolutely have an impact on it. And to say so is otherwise is just disingenuous. Humans obviously had a factor in that too. But here's another fact for you. 
2001, they gave 100 Shiris bull moose tags in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. You know how many bull moose tags they gave out last year? I'm not even going to guess this time. Zero. Zero. Okay. So you see bull moose, but they're pretty close to Jackson, they're moose junction, that kind of thing. But that herd is destroyed. Shiris moose is a very interesting species because geographically it, it goes a little bit into Canada and you got Montana, um, Wyoming, of course, Idaho, Utah, and down into Colorado. Mm-hmm. But those moose are, I mean, the Wyoming range of Area G, Wyoming, that used to be the premier moose hunting place in the world. And it's not worth applying now. And that's just because there's none left except for the ones that are close to town. Well, there and again, the varying factors, ticks are a factor, and mm-hmm. that's they'll, they'll pontificate about that. I've heard all kinds of it. But what you see when you fly it in the wintertime is the drag tails of those big bulls never came off that top. They run them off in seven foot of snow. They get them hamstrung. It might take them a week. Um, they documented the biggest pack of wolves down there in the whole back few years. goes 30-some strong. A pack that size can take anything down. It doesn't matter how big it is. They're not preying on the sick and the weak because if the sick and the weak are gone, they still eat every day. And it's like dropping them off at an all-you-can-eat buffet. Yeah. Well, all you have to do is uh, get on Google and or National Geographic even. Um, even though a lot of those people are on the uh, more of the anti side of things, they're still showing what's really happening in nature. And what happens in nature isn't isn't pretty. You can see some pretty... Pretty rough things that what wolves will do to yeah. knock something down. So absolutely. Is there anything else you had on that? Feel like you need to get off your chest? <laughs> no, sir. Okay, that was good. That was, that was really informative. I really hope people listen to that chunk of that right there and take it to heart. Get involved, and uh, yeah, don't like you said. Trapping is low hanging fruit. Once they start there, they've got a foothold to go anywhere. They can go to archery next. They go to rifles next. Next thing you know, we're all eating apples. Well, and you look at the latest, uh, like, come out of the BLM here in the last few weeks, Tracy Stone Manning and this conservation easement thing. That is absolutely devastating to ranchers, mining, timber, our way of life. And, and that's what folks need to understand is you may not be a trapper, but everybody needs one. If you have a chicken coop, you need a trapper. If you have a coon coming in or a coyote killing on your sheep or your cattle, you need a trapper. But when they get done with us, they're not done. Mm-hmm. It's it's that Western way of life. Well, and like Wade said too, I mean, 99% of the people listening to this have trapped something in their lifetime. Just go to a mouse. You're a trapper. Absolutely. That's a... Uh, Trapping founded this country. I especially mean, it, this it, side of the it, country. It's, it's the way the West was settled. And we're still very relevant and necessary. Um, things have evolved. And the fact that, you know... I mean, wolves were trapped in, in Canada and brought down and released into Yellowstone. I've been involved in uh, release projects all over the country, river otters, pine martens, wolves. I guess real quick we could talk about that. Um, so I didn't really know this either. I just assumed when they were trapping wolves to bring to Yellowstone, it was like big, huge live traps and things like that. It turns out they're using foothold traps in a lot of the uh, reintroduction projects or what whatever. A lot of them is foothold traps, and that's something – for anybody who's a non no trapper or whatever to prove that traps aren't this big scary thing that's gonna snap on snap a leg and you know ruin things if they're reintroducing something they don't want it to be injured when it gets to its new place so i guess since you were on those projects what 
It's kind of explain how that worked. Well, when you trap something, how do you get it to the new place? So just to be fair, you know, I, I didn't trap any of the wolves that came into Yellowstone yeah. or anything, but I've certainly caught them, put radio collars on them for the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, you catch them, you immobilize them, put a collar, take your data, that kind of thing, and you release it, and they run away unharmed because of the modern swiveling and the things. I mean, you know, there's this misperception out there that cruels, or traps are this cruel device. Um, we catch river otters and move them. I mean, Iowa in 1993 reintroduced river otters into northern Iowa. They now have a season on them. The otters are doing great, and they were all caught in foothold traps. Yeah. So that's that's something, like, specifically my mom. She is she's not an anti-trapper, but she's non-trapper. She thinks it's cruel. And I've tried showing her and explaining it to her, and it's kind of... I wouldn't say she doesn't listen, but she's... Uh, doesn't quite believe it until she sees it and she hasn't really seen it in person she doesn't want to go out to check traps with me and i know as soon as i do that i'll have something will have happened where we have a screw up as much as you try to avoid it it happens but like that's something you can tell people is if you just i googled it when we got back last night if you look into the stuff at all you can see that all these projects 99 percent of it was foothold traps and that shows how safe it is because if biologists are doing research like I said, they're not, they don't want an injured animal going to its new place or if they're putting collars on it. What's the point of that if it's something that they don't know if it'll make it a week because it's got an injury now? So that's something we can talk about too. Absolutely. You know, uh, we can we target specific species. And in a lot of cases, you know, uh, when I was doing livestock depredation, specific animals that were actually doing the damage. But the bottom line is the way we've got things set up is if I've got a non-target, I can release it unharmed. Mm-hmm. You, of course you can have a mess up. But, you know, cars kill thousands of animals every year in Montana. We're not, we're not raising a stink about that. Of course you could have that incidental that, that goes bad. But, you know, you do the best you can to mitigate it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's anything, not, not even deer. I mean, how many PETA people have ran over a mouse on the highway or something, not even realized it? I mean, oh, don't go there. They won't want to that. I know they want to talk about that. But so I guess you've been out in the woods and the wild quite a bit in all your adventures. What's some of the uh, coolest animals or things that you've seen out there? Like what sticks out in your mind? Oh, uh, grizzly bears. Um, you know, listening to wolves howl is amazing. That's what I will tell you. Um, just nature in all its glory i mean it i lived in the back country a long time they're um, mainly working on coyotes that were causing livestock depredations and you you develop a respect for the natural order and the natural way of things ranchers understand this they do and they are amazing stewards of the land and that that in itself is a lifestyle we have to preserve at all costs and I don't know if some of some of the folks actually correlate that, that when trapping leaves, that's a tool in a rancher's toolbox to, to mitigate damage to their way of life. Yeah. And, yeah. It's just kind of hard to get people to realize that. Like, you can say it as much as you want, but to get it pounded in their brain is, until it happens, then it's like, oh, shit can we go back and it's hard to go back on some of these things if you change a law to change it back is pretty hard it, it really is yeah that's why with um oh like on the i guess you don't really listen to podcasts but like media podcast and the ryan Cal- callahan podcast they talk about in legislature 
There shouldn't be legislators that are making rules for game animals as far as harvest and take and things like that. That should be up to, um, like, the like for us to fish wildlife and parks and the biologists and things like that. It shouldn't be public opinion on how many geese you can shoot in a year. That should be based on biology and things like that to keep it steady because, I mean, obviously some people say zero or one if they could. Things are going to start getting overrun type of deal. So. Well, and absolutely, and that's that's a fine line you have to be very careful of because I think they need to remember that it was the legislature that enacted Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Mm-hmm. So they're the people that actually gave them the power to do what they're saying that they do. Look, I don't want ballot box biology. Everybody yeah. says follow the science, and then they're upset when you actually follow the science. Yeah, follow the science on what they want you to follow it, the science it, on. As long as it fits the narrative, that's that's what they care about. Um, I'm all about letting the biologists and the science rule the day, if we could ever actually just get to that, but we mm-hmm. don't. There and, might be, yeah, there might be like one talking point in the science and they'll take that one they'll ignore the rest of it but if it can prove their point that scientists said this so yeah so would you say that uh wolves are the trickiest or hardest animals that you've had to deal with like you know smartest or once they know they're being pursued absolutely but i'll tell you right now a trap shy beaver that's been messed with a little bit that can be really cagey and a coyote I'll, I'll tell you right now, some of these coyotes out there, if, they, if they've had much education at all, you only get one chance on a coyote. If you, you pinch him in a leg old, foot old, um, you better try to snare him. You better try to call him in or decoy dog him in. Um, they miss him out of the airplane. Or if I you mean, miss him calling. Yep, exactly. They, they are smart and unbelievable, and they will pattern you. You pull into a ranch every morning at 9 a.m. or 6 a.m. at 4 a.m. If you don't think that they don't have your truck patterned and your pattern patterned, you've missed your guess. Yeah. So, I guess you were talking about today, you had that one trap set that you set and it sat there for months before you caught your wolf in it. You want to give a rundown on that? Because that was a pretty interesting story. So, that was a coyote. But, that was a coyote, um, my bad. So, with, with your trapping, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do, but um, in these harsher climates, I, I mix wax dirt, and that's basically I melt wax into dirt or sand, and when you know it's done, you pour water on it, and then you put it in the freezer, and the next day, you, you should be able to take out, and you can literally pick that water off the top of your wax dirt, and it's still dry and fluffy, and that keeps you going in very inclement situations, and so... I'd bedded a coyote trap, and it's in a spot I drive by every other day. And it got buried in snow, perfectly buried. And six months later, I never relured it or anything. It was a spot where my dog had got out and lifted his leg like we talked about. Never relured it, never did anything. And I came by it, and, you know, there's a big old dog coyote, like literally within a couple days of the snow melting off. So, perfect. Yeah, but I do want to point out because somebody from the other side will listen to this podcast. I was by that thing every forty-eight yeah. hours. Yeah, and there's laws for that too for people that are listening to that. Uh, what is it? Forty-eight hours. Well, so we have talking about? we have a recommended trap check of forty-eight hours, and okay. and and that's absolutely necessary. Uh, Montana is a big state. You get weather that moves in, and we have blizzards that close roads, and you know all kinds of things that can happen. So when you're dealing with predators, it's absolutely critical. Yeah, because the point of us trapping, besides taking care of populations, is for the pelts, you know, the money and whatever for it. It's an expensive thing just to do for 
the fun of it, even though it is fun. But um, if you're leaving something out there that long, there's a chance that something will come along, tear it up, it'll get away. I mean, it kind of defeats the purpose of what we're doing. So that 48 hours, I I personally, as long as I can, I try to go 24 hours, and then I like to have my sets to where I can see them with binoculars and just kind of glance them because you don't want to be walking up like coyote sets. You don't want to be walking up to your set every day because that's more scent you're bringing in. It's absolutely detrimental yeah. to be at your set every day. Um, it, you want to check it from a distance. Uh, you bet it solidly. You make sure it's perfectly blended, and you make it as inconspicuous as possible, and that's your best predator sets. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we're kind of we're already at 40 minutes. So you have a bear story. Would you like to uh, – you just spoke about this on stage in Denver, so would you like to kind of give a rundown on what happened on that? Well, yeah, so I'm a former Fed, right, and I'm supposed to really know what I'm doing. So October of 2021, I come home and about 20 miles north of Gardner there. Pick the boys up from football practice, and we get home just, just before dark, and they've got a chicken coop out back. And my wife's got a greenhouse and the dog kennel's back there. It's about 20 yards from the house. And everything is out running around. I looked at my youngest son and I said, do you leave the coop door open this morning? And he says, no, Dad. And okay. So we go back there and there's a, a small hole right through the side of the coop. But the boys have been raising this turkey for a year. He weighed like 20-some plus pounds. He's a big guy. He's gone. Well, it snowed like four or five inches that morning, so all signs gone. So you circle out and around, and and we cut a coyote track coming through the yard. Okay, that, that's not entirely uncommon. And we follow it up, and we find the turkey breastplate and the leg bone up on the hill. I'm like, Bridger, my youngest son, he's upset. I mean, he's been raising and done a lot of work to raise this thing. I'm like, well, buddy, he'll be back tonight. I mean, he got a free meal, so he's coming back. So that night, it is snowing and blowing and 11 30 at night my wife hollers from the bedroom she says the dogs just barked I'm like okay so i fire the gun up and i leave walk out of the house and there's a turkey track running by my front steps well i know that poultry's out so i go out down around the front of the house and you can't see real well i mean it's black and i went by the hot tub and i'm climbing this little hill there and this is literally 20 steps from my bedroom window and i come around the corner and there is a seven-year-old 500 pound grizzly bear at 10 feet now he doesn't know what's going on but he sensed something because he turns and he's coming and it, it happens fast but what i'll tell you is i don't remember flipping off the safety or depressing the trigger, but the first round went into his chest at eight feet. What size gun were you using? A 308. 308, okay. So, and he still didn't know what happened. He roared and everything. Well, anyway, so six rounds, bear's dead. Because here's the deal. I live in a little subdivision. Twenty-eight. We've got a 20-acre piece. Well, my neighbor to the north is in his high 80s. My neighbor to the south has a chicken coop, and their youngest son has, I would say, disabilities. The last thing you want is a wounded grizzly bear running around <laughs> yeah. in the dark. If, you, if you've taken the first shot, you finish what you've done. That's, that's training kicking in. And that's the only thing that saved me that night, and that I believe God was with me that night because I got really lucky. 
I mean, I'm lucky to be here. Um, six months later, my wife's Cisco driver was three miles behind the house up hunting horns, and that bear killed him. Really? Yes. You can, you can Google all that. I'm not going to go into names or details, but, you know, the, the point is, is that these bears, it, it's called institutional knowledge. So if you have a, a sow grizzly with young young cubs, and she's in raiding coops, and she's in Gardner, Montana, and she's in town, and she's habituated to that, the cubs learn that. If you've ever been to Alaska, have you? I wish. So when you One go day. to Alaska, you can buy a grizzly bear tag over the counter. Um, but when you see a grizzly bear in Alaska, it's headed the other way because they're hunted. And the bears that cause trouble, they're done. And, you know, I would never shoot the last of anything. I don't dislike grizzly bears. Should they be 20 feet from my house raiding my chicken coop? With no fear. Exactly. And so, you know, but here's the scary part for me, and this is where this all hits home, is... See, I was leaving for Wyoming on a week-long pack trip the next day. We had elk tags down there. So I'm gone for a week. My, it's an annual trip my brother and I take and have for years when we draw the tags. See, the next night, that's my 12-year-old son out there. You think he survives? I don't think I want to... I don't, I don't want to speculate. Yeah. That's a father's worst nightmare. Absolutely. Wow. That's terrifying when you think of it. Think of it that way. I mean. So I guess, obviously, now you've. That's a protected animal, and you just shot it. So, I guess where does it where does it go from there? So this is how it works. You've just violated the Endangered Species Act. Um, to be perfectly candid, you might be better to shoot a person because they care about the bear more. You've just it's a crime scene. You don't you don't touch anything. You don't nothing. So I went back in the house, had a beer and called the sheriff and turned it in, and then had another beer and called the game warden and said, "Calm the shakes a little bit, yeah, a little bit." You know, I, so I wasn't. Of course, you're not nervous during. There was no time, but afterwards, oh yeah, I bet um, you you were tired after that after that adrenaline dump. Yes. But the next morning, I have six between federal and state agency people at my house and an investigation and all that. But, and I, I just truly hope that nobody listening has to ever do this because it's not, it's not fun. It's not glorious. And there was, I've replayed that night, I don't know how many times, and there's nothing else to do. There was nothing else to do. And I'm really lucky to be looking you in the eye right now. Yeah. So. So. I guess, obviously, you didn't get in trouble because you're here. But besides the federal people, I'm assuming that what happened was is they looked at it and you told your story and they found casings and you showed them the gun and everything, explained it. And obviously, it's self-defense. But I'm sure that you're not the first. We're not the only ones that know about it. I'm sure people from like PETA and things like that heard about it. You know, I don't know who knows about it. I know okay. that I never saw it break, and I, you know, I don't know if I should be talking about it. But on the other hand, you know, it's what happened. Yeah, that's it. I was under investigation, and it took ten months, for the record, before before they cleared before you. the attorney heard from them and said it's cleared. The case is over. Ten months to sit there and wonder. 
Wow. Now think about that, what that did to my wife and kids. Is dad going to prison? Wow. I, yeah, because I mean, I mean, I can see that where it could go wrong is, you know, you shoot that first shot and then after that's trying to get away, someone could say, well, then it was no longer self-defense. The, the, you know, they could say that. It's just that, you know, the responsible thing to do is finish it. Yeah, because absolutely. Because he then was he got ab- a wounded bear. I, I think he was mortally wounded with the first shot, but you don't take the chance. I'm in the dark. Mm. The neighbor's house is 100 yards to the north. He comes out the next morning and a grizzly bear mauls him. What does that feel like? I mean, I've already, if a crime's been committed, I've already committed it. Yeah. Yeah. Finish the job. Wow. I'm glad you made it through that. I hope I never have to deal with that. I do too. I uh, sincerely do. I don't spend very much time in bear country, but I will tell you I'm pretty bear paranoid just for that reason. But, I mean, I don't quite have the experience everybody else does. They might get a thousand days before they ever even see a bear out there. I don't get that many days out there, so I haven't got used to it yet. But, wow. I guess. Is there uh, is there anything else you would like to say to the people Words of wisdom, anything like that? No, I don't have any words of wisdom. I just <laughs> Used them all up a while ago. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for uh, coming on, sharing that story, and I guess thanks a lot for everything you do for the people that don't, you know, know what you do for us as far as the trapping and the hunting side of things, because it's people like you that are behind the scenes that people don't know on a first name basis, that are the voice, like as you being the vice president for the uh, North American trappers. National Trappers. National Trappers, and then President for Montana. I didn't know that. And so you're the voice for me, and I didn't realize it. That's something I need to be a part of, and I have slacked on. There's a lot of organizations I need to be a part of that I have slacked on. But Well, we'll take care of that when we get done with the podcast. I'll get you signed up for both. There we go. There we go. Okay. Well, again, thanks a lot. And uh, I guess maybe if you have more stories sometime, you can come back on. Finally broke the seal on your first show. So, all right. We'll talk to you later.